You're listening to a podcast from Carving Out a Space for the History of Emotions. This conference took place on the 18th of January 2020 in University College Dublin. The Carving Out a Space for the History of Emotions conference was organised as part of the event series Worrying About the Field of the History of Emotions in Ireland. The series was funded by an Irish Research Council New Foundations Award and the conference was in partnership with the UCD School of English Drama and Film, the UCD School of History and the UCD Humanities Institute. The first keynote speaker at the conference was Dr Rob Bodice from Tampere University, Finland. His paper was entitled The Cultural Brain as Historical Artifact, Emotions History and Interdisciplinary Criticism. Thanks very much, Sarah, for the invitation and for bringing us all together um, in what must be the best publicised conference in the history of emotions I've seen. Barely a moment went by on Twitter where it wasn't mentioned. Um, so it's, it's great to come talk to you. So the, the history of emotions, as we all know here, has become a thriving focus within the discipline of history. Um, in the process, it's gained a critical purchase that makes it relevant for other disciplines concerned with emotion research. So just to kind of recap its fundamental claims, first, emotions are historically and culturally specific and contingent. They change over time. Second, the situatedness of emotions means that with changing contexts, discrete emotions can be lost altogether. And three, emotions make history. That is, they're causative, they're not merely effects. History of emotions is entangled with the history of the body and brain, as well as with cultural and political history. It's interested in the how and why of emotion change, with questions of power and authority behind cultural scripts of expression, conceptual usage, and emotional practice. And I think that this work has now reached a level of maturity and sophistication, both in its theoretical and its methodological orientation, and in the sheer quantity of empirical research, it's been an explosion, that it contributes to emotion knowledge within the broad framework of emotion research. And I think it's been attempting to do this um, since its uh, origins. Uh, one of the origin points of the history of emotions is the analyst work of Lucien Febvre, here on the left, in the 1930s and 40s, which foregrounded a critical reception of psychological attempts to fix both rhetorically and biologically categories of human experience. So Febvre wanted to discount the psychologists, but he was engaging with them. It wasn't until the late 1990s that the history of emotions acquired something like a mature methodology coming on the back of innovative explorations of the emotional past from the mid-1980s and via a close working relationship with cultural anthropologists. So the three prime movers, Febvre initially, and then Peter Stearns here in the middle and, and William Reddy, both pictured in more youthful pomp, all understood the importance of critical engagement with what was happening over the disciplinary fence. In the first two decades of this century, the history of emotions has witnessed an explosion of scholarship, a refinement of theoretical approach and methodological application, and a number of moves towards more substantial interdisciplinary engagement on the terms of bioculture, opening up new fronts on the question of experience. 
So, my talk this morning is, is certainly not intended as an introduction to, or an explanation of, or even an apology for what historians of emotions do. Um, I think by now we have sufficient and compendious uh, foundational and introductory works in the field that we might confidently declare ourselves past the introductory phase. So what I do want to do is to demonstrate the indispensable quality of historical work for emotion researchers in other disciplines, to highlight points of connection and congruence, as well as um, hopefully uh, inspiring historians to aim for a similar kind of critical engagement across disciplinary lines. And the reason for that is I think I think it's imperative that we do so. Um, I think a failure to engage uh, is going to be ultimately catastrophic for us. For many years, research on emotions in different disciplines has taken place upon parallel or even divergent courses, with agreement on the object of study often seeming untenable across disciplinary lines. Within the discipline of psychology, two generations were spent in fundamental disagreement. Are emotions cognitive or non-cognitive, universal or culturally bound? And this um, schism in psychology was brilliantly covered by Ruth Lees in her 2017 book, The Ascent of Affect, offering, I think, the best set of substantial reasons for the abandonment of psychological universalism and uh, essentialism, reductionism, as well as affect theory and basic emotions. All of that is in the bin. But if we abandon that, what are we abandoning it in favor of? It's my conjecture that an alignment of transdisciplinary focus has the potential to offer a solution to the many conceptual and methodological differences that remain. The history of emotions aligns itself with similar movements in schools of philosophy, transcultural psychiatry, cultural anthropology, social theory, social psychology, and social neuroscience, there's probably more, to present a view of the human being as bioculturally dynamic with contingent feelings, expressions, and experiences where meaning is embodied but nonetheless situated, mediated, and constructed. Now, there is no absolute concord among the scholars I'm thinking of here, but when I think of the scholarship of, for example, Thomas Fuchs, Supana Chowdhury and Lawrence Kermeyer, Paul Stenner, Margaret Locke and Gisley Paulson, Maurizio Meloni, Alan Fridland, and Lisa Feldman Barrett, I see enough common ground to start to think of the major advantages of substantial transdisciplinary collaboration. And at the core of this collaboration is the notion of the brain as a cultural and historical artifact, a situated thing constructed in and by human culture, a biocultural organ imprinted through the dynamics of worldedness. Now, for historians, it was, it was William Reddy in particular, transitioning to the discipline of history via cultural anthropology, who oriented us in this direction. In his 1997 article Against Constructionism, Reddy put the brain, body, and the world in dynamic relation through his concept of emotives. 
Put simply, an emotive defines the dynamic relation of expressive utterances, that is, um, speech acts bounded by cultural scripts and inward feelings. So to emote is at once to try to give voice to what one feels, but also a translation of that feeling into an available expression. The act of translation also feeds back onto the feeling itself, the act of expression being a modifier of experience. To the extent that an individual finds an available expression for an inward feeling, there's a motive success and a degree of experiential satisfaction. To the extent that an individual fails to match expression to feeling, there is what he calls emotional suffering. By this theory, Reddy implicated the brain-body in cultural worlds and demonstrated their interrelation. There were no authentic or basic emotions because there was no place or space outside of a culture in which to experience such things. Reddy saw emotives as part of human efforts at what he called conscious self-management, even where the effort was, as it were, invisible, where all bodily feelings were culturally mediated and all cultural expressions were bodily situated. Now, insofar as this concept exists among psychologists, it lies primarily in the work of Lisa Feldman Barrett and her collaborators and followers, although, of course, she never mentions that she knows about this stuff. And it centers on her notion of bioconstruction, the brain's literal making of emotion and experience through the cultural embeddedness of biological machinery. Barrett's observations have been particularly appealing to historians because they confirm from the opposite direction Reddy's findings, closely mirroring his theoretical innovations from 1997 and, of course, his seminal 2001 book, The Navigation of Feeling. So Barrett has managed to uh, engineer a schism, a new schism in the discipline of psychology between her bioconstructionist side and the universalists of the Paul Ekman, Sylvan Tompkins schools. And while the universalists argue that core emotions like fear and anger are hardwired into neural circuitry that's dedicated to the task and more or less universal, Barrett argues that emotion concepts such as anger or fear are more or less ephemeral constructions that arise from the culturally situated brain's multiple and multipurpose moving parts. Her findings on the relationship between emotion concepts and emotional experience has orientated a whole branch of psychology toward the importance of that which is contingent. Her linguistic focus places a strong emphasis on that which is neither fixed in the body nor universal across cultures. And the striking takeaway is that while the brain makes emotions, it makes them in a body that is situated. Emotion, emotion, as an objectively existing thing to be found, turns out to be a phantom, a category that confuses and obfuscates more than it helps and explains. Now, a thorough Appraisal of historical scholarship on the emotions and senses ought to settle the debate in her favor, since historians have amassed empirical evidence of the contingency of human affective experiences from three millennia of historical data. But the insights of historians also ought to change the kind of questions that scientists like Barrett ask. Since concepts play such an important role in her work, 
just as language is central to Reddy's work, it ought to be of significant consequence that concepts themselves are historically contingent. Thomas Dixon pointed out quite a long time ago by now that the word emotion itself is of relatively recent usage in its signification of a category of psychological investigation and that its linguistic forebears, especially the passions, um, uh, Proskonegin, Damien Bocquet uh, highlight uh, affectus for the medieval period as the, as the key concept, entirely uh, differed in the way that they produce ways of knowing about human experience and of experiencing being human. In extending this view, looking at affective categories in Greek, Latin, Italian, German, French, and English over time, with considerable headache, I drew upon a massive body of scholarship that together demonstrates the error of translating historical categories into contemporary English master categories, such as anger or love or disgust. To do so undermines and overwrites the situated significance of the original terms. So I take seriously Barrett's claim that, the, that concept development is culturally contingent and that emotional experience is hitched to this contingency. By exploring concepts across time and space, where emotions as we know them don't exist, I posit the logical extension of her claims. The variability of human emotional development and experience is bigger, I suspect, than even Barrett realizes. Moreover, since Reddy's interventions, his emotive theory has been developed and extended by those of us who questioned the limited focus on linguistic utterances and upon conscious self-management. Monique Scheer, who I think was one of your presenters, uh, in particular, pushed historians to think about emotions as a kind of practice, things that humans do in the world that involve not just words and concepts, but physical expressions, gestures, and postures, and which are connected both to distinct epistemologies and the ways in which such epistemologies are performed. And I think this has been empirically exemplified rather brilliantly by people like Aaron Sullivan uh, and Javier Moscoso, as well as in a, a new book edited by Beatrice Pichel, Dolores Martin Maruno, um, Historians of emotion are increasingly persuaded that once cultural scripts are understood to be running, there's no place, no private space or unconscious realm where they can be avoided. Experience is mediated all the time, always filtered and translated according to local contexts of possibility. This insight leads to a collapse of hard distinctions between culture and biology, conscious and unconscious, nature and nurture, because there are simply no functions that can be isolated from a context. Whatever structural similarities in the human brain and body might be appealed to over time, it is inescapable that the experience of the brain-body-world dynamic is always situated, always practiced. We might, looking at the past one way, seek to emphasize similarities and commonalities in experience over time and across cultures. The risk, and something to which I think the historicist mind is particularly attuned, is that seeking continuity overlooks that which is lost or changed, and with it, the causes of those losses and changes. Given that the impetus of research into the relation of culture, mind, and brain 
is heavily focused on disruption, plasticity, development, and transformation. It seems germane that those of us who see the cultural brain as a historical artifact emphasize change over time. Sensory history tends in the same direction. Um, it's another massive field, amazingly not cross-pollinated for the most part with the history of emotions. As does a body of interdisciplinary research on interoception, uh, that is the, the sense or the feeling of one's own interior, that's attempting to integrate models of awareness of the self from outside and from within. If interiority is dynamically involved with exteriority, then what happens and the feeling of what happens inside the body are no less situated than stimuli from the outside. They cannot in any meaningful sense be isolated as entirely natural or fixed biological functions or states. Once we head towards this kind of integration, once we head towards biocultural understandings of the human, then we can't anymore parcel off bits of biological functioning that sit outside of the model. The most basic of automatic functions and sensations become, in a meaningful sense, as contingent as the most obviously constructed. Feldman Barrett herself has noted the ways in which interception has to be translated through situated conceptual repertoires in order to become meaningful as experience. And this accords with much of the latest research on interoception from a variety of disciplines. Cognitive and developmental neuroscientists Katrina Futopoulou and Mariana von Moor go so far as to say that even the most fundamental of core subjective feelings, things like hunger and satiation, pain and relief, cold or warmth, homeostasis itself have cultural origins. And I think historians are well-placed to confirm this and indeed have gone to some lengths already in doing so. But they also go beyond confirmation of a scientific insight. By stressing the mutability of cultural configurations, that is, the contingency and situatedness of human beings, the category of core subjective feelings becomes further destabilized. Hunger and satiation, pain and relief, cold and warmth are all historical, experienced according to junctures of time and place, following no set path or repertoire of significance, meaning, or value. And there's already a large and growing body of historical evidence, for example, on the importance of cultural contingency in the experience of pain, a subject which has proven to be particularly open to transdisciplinary exchange. And I think this takes us beyond, or perhaps before, linguistic concepts, to the contingencies of expression and gesture of bodies in space, of biocultural interaction among humans in particular configurations of society, to argue that from the beginning of life, experience is mediated and mitigated. Senses, external and internal, amorphous feelings that should defy easy categorization, are directed and made meaningful in exchange or interaction in and through social contexts and institutions, and through culturally bound scripts of expression and action. And they provide the building blocks of emotional and sensory lives and experience itself. Again, we find agreement about this across the disciplines, from the work of Margaret Purnau and Imke Rajamani in history, Drew Leda in philosophy, Katrina Fotopoulou in psychodynamic, psychodynamic neuroscience, 
and Manos Sacris in neurocognition. Such views are extended by historians and anthropologists who have demonstrated the extraordinary degree of cultural contingency involved in so-called automatic systems, such that the delicate balance that determines the difference between bodily integration and disintegration between homeostasis and catastrophic internal failure is itself hitched to complex contexts involving the self, culture, experience, that is what the body knows and what the body undergoes, social institutions and knowledge. This has been particularly illuminated in the context of war, medicine and disease, and I'm thinking particularly of Stefanos Gerolanus and Todd Meyer's recent book, amazing book, The Human Body in the Age of Catastrophe, uh, as exemplary in this regard, as well as Bettina Hitz's work, the book is out uh, this week, I think, um, conjoining insights from the history of the emotions with those of the history of the senses, in order to illuminate the mutability of the experience of disease, uh, with particular reference to the historical situatedness of the sense of smell, the feeling of disgust, and cancer. Her analysis shows that how a patient feels and how an observer feels about a patient cannot be reduced to the study of pathology or anatomy, cannot be anchored in a universal human body. The experience of cancer doesn't inhere in an objectified notion of the disease itself, but in the medico-cultural context of the sufferer and in the cultural and political context of its reception. As with other bioconstructionist studies of pain, its experience and its mitigation, Hitzer shows there is no one-to-one relationship between physical stimulus and either sensory or affective experience. The latter are always mediated regardless of the extent to which the stimulus, say, the smell of cancer, can be understood objectively. She demonstrates the extent to which experience is weighted with moral values that are embodied and that can change over a relatively short time. More importantly, she shows both how and why that change occurs. So while we might say, then, that it's become manifest across the biological sciences that culture is a dynamic component of human brain-body formation and experience, that culture is essential to understanding the questions of neuroplasticity, emotional development, interception, predictive coding, facial recognition, empathy, and so on. Culture is nonetheless often reduced by those sciences that have come to depend on it. When one encounters culture in the biological sciences, one often reads simply of the exterior, or of input, or of the world. And the world, insofar as it introduces contingency to what it is to be human, is not in itself understood to be contingent. So I ask what happens then when culture, both as a cause and an effect of human formation, is itself situated and disrupted and historicized. And this is why I think that we hold the key to a radical interdisciplinary engagement that complicates the question of culture in ways complementary to the biological disruption of the human interior. Acknowledging this should change the kinds of questions asked by those who study the brain. And all of this is converging with a separate historical project that has attempted to foreground the historical brain in cultural context. So Daniel Lord Smale coined 
the term neurohistory in his 2008 book on deep history and the brain to try to demonstrate the myriad ways in which culture writes to nature, such that the psychological condition of an individual in another time might radically differ from that of a contemporary actor. Neurohistory embraces research in neuroplasticity to explore past contexts of brain development, where now lost cultural, technological, and environmental influences and scripts of experience must have played formative roles in his term psychotropy, defined broadly as mind-changing. Now, of course, actual historical brains tend not to be available to us, um, but the neurohistorian works by piecing context, practices, and historical dynamics of power together with testimony, description, and depiction of experience in historical terms. And the picture that emerges is one of historical brains constructing historical cultures and historical cultures forming historical brains, uh, a, a dynamic relationship. Moreover, neurohistory examines historically specific psychotropic influences on brain development, brain chemistry, uh, and perceptions of reality to show the extent to which the culturally mediated brain is temporarily situated. So think of influences uh, like um, alcohol, coffee, tobacco, or narcotics and their introduction into um, new, new areas. But it also explores what might be thought of uh, less obviously as psychotropic factors such as disease, new technology, atmospheric pollutants, or new cultural practices. So one might think about the introduction of syphilis to South America, for example, uh, the effect on the brain of the intervention of movable, of the invention of movable type and of the sudden rise of mass literacy, of the spike in lead in the atmosphere after the Industrial Revolution, and of the cultural brain in the age of the Internet. We are not what we were. That human brains underwent sudden changes in development, concomitant with acute changes in the perception of reality, seems to me beyond doubt. We need to do more investigation, but I think there's enough already to suggest that brain researchers need to think in historical time and not just in evolutionary time. Now, for all that Smale innovated, his project did hinge... Uh, ultimately, on an attachment to a fundamental biological structure that transcended humanity both in the present and in the historical past. Uh, nonetheless, I think the implications of his work point to the disruption of a culture-biology split. And Smale himself, I think unfortunately, recently cemented his own commitment to something fundamentally automatic and unconscious at the root of the human being. But he, to be fair to him, he's also been alive to critical revision. His original observation that culture writes to nature has the obvious correlative that nature also writes to culture, and in turn the distinction between the two categories collapses into entanglement. Recent attempts at revision of neurohistory's aims especially by uh, Jeremy Berman, Larry McGrath, and myself, have pursued this collapse more pointedly, asking what value remains in thinking about so-called ancient parts of the brain or hardwired processes when such parts and processes are nonetheless 
still culturally situated and where experience is still culturally mediated. We've argued that the general tenor of the neurohistory argument necessitates the rejection of any form of biological determinism, reductionism, or automaticity, precisely because the neuroplasticity at the heart of the project is hitched to contingencies that are not only formative of human brain-body systems, but also formed by them, and not without intention. Indeed, situated biology seems directly to invite the study of human power dynamics and politics, social encounter and exchange, as well as the instruments of dissemination of dominant ideas and ideologies in order to understand the causative agencies behind social and technological changes that in turn affect brains and bodies. An appeal to core affect or to ancient evolutionary adaptations must be an appeal to the human outside of culture, which to my mind is an appeal to something not human at all. If a more radical neurohistorical project to historicize the brain body is serious, then it must take seriously the full implications of the specific cultural webs of significance that brain bodies make and in which they are caught. In addition to psychotropics, the door opens to the exploration of the implications and potential of epigenetics to explain changes in historical contexts of possibility and to borrow the vocabulary of situated or local biology from anthropologists, I'm thinking very much of Margaret Locke's work here, in order to give full credence to a historical evidence of bodily mutability. What is emerging from this strand of biocultural historicism is evidence of a plurally plastic human, irreducible to biology or culture, to brain or to body, but rather caught up in a dynamic of formation that entangles brain, body, and world. This is all about taking the culture component of bioculture seriously without reproducing the biology culture dyad. I've argued that the turn to the social and cultural among certain branches of psychology, which is the one note of hope that Ruth Lees offers in her book, has pulled psychologists almost unwittingly into the sphere of the humanities. I think that we have to register that presence and we have to respond to it because it seems inevitable that these psychologic threads will continue to be over interwoven with major research foci in the humanities and we ought to be playing a leading role in developing them. For while bioconstruction is predicated upon an understanding of human emotions as culturally and socially situated, the theoretical and methodological tools, training and expertise required for the interrogation, analysis and interpretation of culture remains largely outside of psychology. And the study of change over time specifically, of course, belongs to historians. Culture has become critical to neuroscientific research, but culture itself is beyond neuroscientific expertise. And this shouldn't be understood as a sort of slur or a criticism, so much as it is a reflection on the limitation of a discipline whose focus is necessarily on the inside of the human being. If culture is vital to the future of neuroscience as it is currently oriented, it only makes sense to try to plot a future course in the study of emotion collaboratively 
and in the spirit of mutually beneficial exchange. I don't think it's tenable that historians can fail to notice or apply what's happening in social neurosciences and other disciplines, and the extent to which their approach is implicated with ours. But nor is it tenable for practicing neuroscientists to remain non-conversant with historical research that has a direct bearing on the questions they ask and the guiding assumptions they employ. If neuroscience has opened the door to the humanities and to history especially, then Emotion Research cannot, as Daniel Gross and Stephanie Preston will show in an article to be published this year in Emotion Review, expect to carry on regardless. Now, neither Daniel Gross nor Stephanie Preston identifies primarily as an historian, which is why I think might have a chance of getting a readership. Gross studies rhetoric. Preston is a neuroscientist. Their combination has produced an entirely original historical argument that's aimed at revolutionizing the way in which emotion science is done. I can't wait for you to read it. Noting the influence of Charles Darwin's work on emotions, they demonstrate how far Darwin's method has been lost in the process of pinning specific psychological research goals on an eminent genealogy. So they revisit Darwin's own method and they find fault with current preoccupations with controls, the limitation of focus, and an overall level of specialism in psychology that leads to results that seem to have no connection to the lived experience of emotions. They call for nothing less than a re-embrace of generalism within emotion science that would include the humanities in all aspects of emotion research, an insight reachable only through close historical analysis. And they, they leave off with a slogan, always historicize. Um, and I think that is a fitting slogan for cross-disciplinary research. History, then, is not merely additive to psychological methods, nor is it merely background. If history's contribution to emotion knowledge means anything, then it should mean the disruption of the very starting point of emotion research. It alters the assumptions that researchers take with them to the lab or to the field, and it should influence the kind of questions that can be asked, as well as changing the stakes of the answers to be sought. I mean... I encounter these people all the time, and often it seems to the non-historian that history is sort of buried in the past in dry facts and figures. But I think we understand our work to have a real critical purchase for the present and the future. That, that purchase shouldn't be understood as having anything to do with prediction in scientific terms nor do we understand the past as a rich source of lessons, like some kind of cycle of uh, repeating circumstances. On the contrary, historians show the profound importance of cultural contingency, of inconstancy and instability, and therefore see the striving for timeless or essential definitions as futile. Objectivity is, as Lorraine Daston and Peter Gallison, I think now famously pointed out, an affect a posture of situated scientific practice rather than a true understanding of the world. I think this underpins our resistance to anything look, that looks like biological determinism or essentialism, preferring to look instead for mutability in bodies, brains and worlds, locked in unstable relationships. 
Most importantly, historians see with an eye to the future that psychological research into emotions in the last 50 years or so has not escaped its own moment in time. The work of recent decades, from whatever theoretical or methodological perspective, has a place in the multivalent narrative of the history of emotions. Nobody has cracked it, so to speak, such that we can pin down what emotions are and how they work for all time. And there's increasing agreement across disciplinary lines that such a search has no merit. As new concepts, new cultural conditions, new scientific practices, new technologies, both for living by and researching with, new selves and new experiences emerge, so the whole framework for understanding how and why we feel will continue to change. If history can predict anything, then, it's the certainty of change. Scientific methods, theories, standards, ethics, assumptions, facts, institutions, and on and on, all change as do the objects of study themselves. Time is already told. To strive for a definitive answer to the function and working of something so profoundly rich as human emotions is to overlook or misunderstand the history of the human being itself. A deep collaboration between historians and psychologists, among others, is sorely needed in order to reach a better understanding of how and why emotion concepts, emotional experiences, and sensory perceptions change. Why are emotions unstable, historically speaking? Why is experience contingent? These questions get to the heart of the biocultural dynamics of emotion, and no one discipline is kitted out to tackle them alone. So where is all of this leading us? Um, I think for now that remains an open question. As psychology and the neurosciences turn toward culture, they inevitably turn towards questions that have long preoccupied us. As yet, there is little cross-pollination of ideas across disciplinary boundaries between those sciences and the humanities, but I don't think that this is a sustainable situation. The study of mind and brain increasingly recognizes that culture can't be parceled off or reduced any more than biology can be isolated or rendered deterministic. And this recognition builds a bridge across the disciplines. Uh, this book should be out this year. Changing research questions and methods on both sides as it does so. How can context be studied in a scientifically rigorous fashion in order to get at local contingencies and the inherent instability of the constructed worlds in which humans live and have lived? How should scientists investigate culture as a vital and dynamic part of mind and experience of the biological formation of the plurally plastic, situated, contingent human brain-body system. It's historians who've been addressing precisely these questions now for more than two decades, approaching the human from the outside in. The more recent turn of the social neurosciences in particular, but also social psychology and transcultural psychiatry to the importance of culture and human formation and experience has, to a large extent, overlooked all of our work. They've arrived at the importance of culture from the inside out. Between us, we meet at a common point, at the unstable boundary between biology and culture, between interior and exterior, that defines the human. Recent historiographical trends, just as with recent neuroscientific trends, promise to collapse dualistic ways of thinking, to remove space 
between biology and culture, nature and nurture, and to fully embrace the human as a biocultural entity. For their part, some historians are actively reaching out to make use of scientific work on the contingent interior, but we see little traffic in the opposite direction. And I do wonder, along with Otniel Dror, at the role of the historian in the emotion laboratory. Yet if historians claim that the cultural brain is, by logical extension, understood also to be an historical artifact, then historical insight must become an essential element in brain research. It offers the kind of critical cultural reflection that's required in order to transform these vague psychological references to the exterior or to social input or to the world into major complicating factors in the study of the human interior and the brain. My concluding observation, therefore, is that in emotion research, disciplinary boundaries are already breached. I think historians in particular find a critical purchase in this instability, but also recognize some ripe opportunities for sympathetic cross-reading and collaboration. To fail to come together, at least at first just to recognize one another, will be a lost opportunity of enormous magnitude. Emotion research can only count for something if it ceases to be on parallel or divergent tracks according to outmoded and sealed disciplinary logics. Inevitably, that means some branches of emotion research have to die. <laughs> the common ground across the disciplines, the core of an embryonic consensus, is in bioculture. It's in dynamics of continuity and change, mutability and construction, bodies in worlds and worlds in bodies. Our respective positions will be much more strongly put if we work together to define our commonalities and points of disagreement. And sure, there are plenty of disagreements. But we won't be able to broach them till we have first agreed that we do, in fact, share a common purpose and a basic understanding. But while I'm certain that we must all work together across the disciplines, the question of how still looms large. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the UCD Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of episodes, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities.